The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Friday, April 13th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Russian TV is rife with denials about the basic agreed upon facts by everyone but the Russians and the Syrians in the Bashar al-Assad chemical attacks. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, speaking in Moscow, said there is proof the reported chemical attack was staged. Now, this denial is on the heels of a very similar Russian denial about the chemical attack on the former Russian agent and his daughter in the UK. Now, hearing these piecemeal reports, these Russian denials here and there, you may lose the forest from the trees, or as the Russians say, the bear may become untethered from the handler. The big news out of Russia at this moment is this. Russian scientists have disproved chemicals. There is no such thing as chemicals. According to top Russian scientists, chemicals themselves do not exist. Water may henceforth be treated as a thing that is wet or even if you must watery, but please don't look into that in a more, shall we say, granular level. Salt, they're not saying it's not salty, but it's just salt. Just call it salt. N-A-C-L. You're really losing me here. The Nobel Prize won in chemistry by Russian Nikolay Semyonov in 1956 will be reclassified as a Nobel Prize in poetry. Please inform the Nobel Committee. Russian spokesman Dmitry Peskov noted the periodic table. The periodic table. Not very consistent. Now we find out it wasn't even periodic. It never existed. Chinese hoax. The Russian added... There is no longer a need to investigate any chemical attacks. Also, we don't need to clean up Chernobyl, Chalabinka, or any of the former sites of nickel plants where the rivers turn red and the ground now hums. The spokesman added, it is for these reasons that we can firmly say chemistry and chemicals themselves have been disproved, adding, where is our thank you? On the show today, it is an Antan twig. It's literally been three weeks. An Antan twig literally means three weeks. Well, literally, we kind of made the phrase up. But still, we'll check in on all the listener mail. But first, Ed Helms, you know him from The Banjo and The Daily Show and The Office and The Hangover. But now get to know him for a dramatic role where he plays a Ted Kennedy defender who becomes a defector. He stars in the movie Chappaquiddick, and he's here now. In 1969, Senator Ted Kennedy drove off a bridge and into a pond between the tiny island of Chappaquiddick and Martha's Vineyard proper. His passenger, Mary Jo Kopechny, drowned. Kennedy faced scrutiny, deserved scrutiny, that he eventually weathered. The new film about this, Chappaquiddick, is open. One of the stars of the movie, Ed Helms, is with me. Ed, how are you? I'm stupendous. How are you? I'm well. So I think this wasn't literally the first line you said, but uh, within the first four lines, there was a reference to uh, a regatta this afternoon (laughs) and a cottage for the potty. A regatta. Regatta. (laughs) Regatta. Oh, my gosh. What's going on, Teddy? I've been on hold here for 10 minutes. Well, I really needed to talk to you. Well, it must be something really damn important. The hotel in the vineyard is overbooked. What are you talking about? I just checked us in. I got the key in my pocket right now. No, no, not our room. The girl's room. 
They just called. Oh, come on. They ran Bobby's campaign, Teddy. I'm sure they can sort it out for themselves. Joey, they don't know the island. I need this angle properly. Well, what do you want me to do? Slap an injunction on the desk clerk until he coughs up a room? Don't need my lawyer. I need my cousin. I need my advance man. I gotta rig the boat, Teddy. The regatta's this afternoon. No one the races. I'm sailing the damn boat. And I'm still getting the cottage organized for the party. Joey. Yeah, I did my homework on that accent. Uh-huh. I w- everyone's like, "Oh, hey, that was a not a bad Boston accent." It's not a Boston accent. It's a it's called the Brahmin accent, which is this hyper class. But it's not it, yeah. it was like the Kennedys are the only people on record who talked like that. Kerry uh, uh, has it a little. He's an original yes. Boston Brahmin too. Yeah. It's totally inconsistent. That's what's impossible about it. It's right. it's like in the same sentence the the same vowels will be pronounced differently and you just have it's almost a word for word thing uh-huh and i listen to just so many kennedy speeches and it's more pronounced in their speeches than it is in their just sort of vernacular dialogue because they're declaiming yeah. and performing exactly and yeah yeah but but that's where to kind of dial it in is to listen to those speeches did you use a voice coach or were you self-taught on the yeah accent? no we all did we had the, yeah. we had a great dialect coach and and she uh she was on set and a lot of times we would just do multiple takes just to get <laughs> just to get the usable accent could they do a thing where they get a sound or you're nailing a word from one take and but using the performance from another? Oh, they can do anything. <laughs> Is that they, good? Is that They th- do all that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if they if they love where you put your coffee mug down in one take but they didn't like your voice in it, then yeah. they'll just grab the voice from something else and stick it in. I mean, there's they're always doing that stuff. It's called movie magic. I know, but is it cool? Like, would you rather, as an actor, I, I, I'm not, I know you don't want to go dogma on us all of a sudden, but do you um, like a pastiche of like four different takes in one? I uh, I don't give a shit. I, I think if it's <laughs> He's a professional if it, that wants if, to be cast again, <laughs> <laughs> no, if it serves the movie, it's it's a lot of times on a set they'll say. Hey, what, are you guys cool if we just shoot the rehearsal? And most of the time, you're like, yeah, let's just shoot the rehearsal. We have one take under our belts and whatever. But I've worked with actors who say, nope, can't shoot the rehearsal. And I remember asking uh, one of those actors, what's the big deal? Why, why not let them shoot the rehearsal? And he said, because then they'll use it. Yeah. And I said, well, then what's the problem with that? And he said, well, I'm not ready. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. It's, it's a, how an actor can exert some control over the process, but- I don't know. I sort of am a director's actor that way. I really trust the director and the editor to kind of make the right choices. Also, might this be true that were this in comedy, were were this movie a comedy, were this really in your wheelhouse, even a comedy of the kind that you've directed, maybe you'd be a little more comfortable with it. So you have to have a little distance. I mean, it's not that you haven't done drama, dramatic comedy before, but from what I've seen you, this is the most straightforward dramatic role you've ever had. That's confusing because I thought this was a comedy. Yeah, I, that's the thing. So it's not, are you saying that Chappaquiddick is not funny? <laughs> well, this, this when they is had terrible. The, when they had the slide whistle <laughs> when, she, when he goes off the bridge. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when the sad trombones yeah, scored. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I guess it's just sort of outside of what I've done before. But but I kind of think that that's that's a little bit of a mischaracterization. I because I look at all of it the same. I really don't approach a comedy a whole lot differently from a dramatic role. Uh, to me, something's the most funny when it's the most 
genuine or yeah. honest of a yeah. performance. And I think this and it's the most dramatic when it's the most sort of genuine version of that. And so <laughs> I hate to sound like an actor, but but looking for the truth in a in a scene or in a in a piece of dialogue, it's the same process for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in Chappaquiddick, the two other than uh, Ted Kennedy, the two main characters are Kennedy lackeys, Kennedy aides, and they're played by you and Jim Gaffigan. What do you think the effect of hiring? people who are best known for comedy in those roles. I have a theory. Um, I heard you saying that you you approach all these roles the same, but what do you think the director and the casting agent were going for in tapping you guys? I think that that John Curran, the director, really just wanted a little sex appeal mm-hmm, sure. in this movie. Can't hurt. So he's like, yeah. let's get some Ed Helms. <laughs> I, I don't know. I it is it is funny that it's Gaffigan in me. I mean, yeah. he's a really old friend of mine, and I, uh, we we often chuckled on set about how ironic it was that that our our first collaboration is like this dead serious movie. We had some connection that that made it all feel right. This is one thing I observed. So we meet you. Uh, you play Joe Gargan, and we meet Gaffigan's character, Paul Markham, real people. And you're Kennedy aides. That means you're powerful people. You are. You have the trust of a U.S. senator. In fact, you know, the scion of the most important political dynasty in American history. So we think that means something. And then you get into trouble, and then Kennedy goes off the bridge. And then we're thrust into the room with the real heavy hitters. And we're thrust into the room where you're talking to... Clancy Clancy Brown, who plays Robert McNamara. And my impression of McNamara comes from, you know, reading history. Fog of War. And the Errol Errol Morris film. But Clancy Brown plays him like Clancy Brown. Now, if you don't know, if the listeners are forgetting who who Clancy Brown is, he's the head guard in Shawshank Redemption. He, if I was looking at his IMDb credits. He's Kurgan in Highlander. Yeah, he's, he's badass number one. And his voice work includes Odin. So he is the heaviest of heavies. And so the effect, at least for me, was I was with some people that I thought were serious players, but now that I've come up against Clancy Brown as McNamara, you guys wilt. You guys <laughs> cannot stand up to that, you know, in the intensity of that sun. And I think that's, I don't know if that's because I, I know you as a funny person. I know you as you inhabiting this character, and that's how the character is written. But that was stark, and I think that really worked. A dead body holds a lot of secrets. Those secrets can be the difference between guilt and innocence, so we need to be in control of them. The only way to do that is to be in control of that dead girl's body. Good, because my staffer, Don Gifford, is already at the funeral home right now. And that poor girl's body isn't going anywhere except home to New Jersey without us knowing about it. Senator, with all due respect, having a gopher sitting on his hands in the lobby isn't getting us anywhere. Now, there are explicit procedures must be followed for moving a body across state lines. Do you have any idea? Has the death certificate even been signed yet? Yeah, he's just a human wrecking ball in in those scenes. It's so cool to watch. And you're right. The the real McNamara is a much more kind of academic, analytical, almost nerdy guy. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, That's why they called it the best and the brightest because he was, you know, but he's um, the casting. I think throughout this whole this whole movie is really cool and and surprising in some ways, but ultimately incredibly effective. How much did you know? Had you even heard the name uh, Joe Gargan before this started? No, I had never heard the name Joe Gargan. Because when he died, I mean, he was an important figure. When he died, and I went back and read his obit, didn't even run in the Globe. He was kind of forgotten as connected to this story, and he got out of the Kennedy's orbit afterwards. He was so turned off as the movie portrays. Yeah, it's, it's unclear if he was sort of like pushed out or if he just kind of walked away, but he definitely didn't maintain a close connection to the family afterwards. And he's clearly someone that avoids the spotlight and I think did at that time, because even at that time, he really was only known in the legal proceedings, like in, you know, during the inquest and so forth. Uh, That's where his name comes up. There's so little material about Joe Gargan. You can find bits and pieces of biographical data in other books and, and books about other people. Right. But it's uh, it, it's hard. I had to I had to kind of scrape together bit what I could find. And and by the way, also very hard to find a picture of him, which yeah. was which was Except in his 80s wearing a Notre yeah. Dame cap. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but that was a relief because that meant no one was going to kind of call me out for not looking like him right. or, or not doing him right or whatever. But I, there, And there are, you know, maybe maybe not quite 20, but at least a dozen Chappaquiddick books, but you can't really trust them. I mean, a lot of them, the motivation is... And documentaries. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and maybe if you add a bunch of them together, they give you some insight, but mm-hmm. they're also contradictory. And yeah. they, the motivation is to go with the wildest conspiracy theory, which, by the way, could have happened. Well, <laughs> you're right. There's a lot out there, and a lot of it's very agenda-driven. I think what's what I'm super proud of about this movie is that we all wanted to, to find as many facts as possible yes. and to root the whole narrative in as many facts, indisputable facts as possible. And then, so you don't have you don't have him being liquored up beforehand because you can't prove it. There's nothing about yeah. if he was or wasn't having an affa- if Kennedy was or wasn't having an affair with Mary Jo Kopechny to say nothing of this. This idea that she was pregnant, which has never been proved, so it's sure, not in the sure. movie. Well, what is in the movie is is some ambiguity about those things. That's right. And that, I think, is the only honest way to portray it. You do have Teddy holding a drink before the accident uh, at the party. You do have he and Mary Jo kind of having some intimate dialogue mm-hmm. and sitting in a sort of close, in, intimate way that could lead somewhere. So that... Or that could indicate that could there indicate, was a yeah. relationship. In other yeah. words, it's possible. Right. And it, but anyone who says it's definitely this or definitely that is totally full of shit because we just don't know. Right. And unlike, I mean, it's not journalism. And what journalism tries to do is say that is how this guy is or was and that is what that guy said. But art tries to do something more like that's how people are. That is how a person right. could be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all that said, it's still hilarious, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's still hilarious. Sure. A romp, a I mean, comic d- romp. Do I, do, do I not get this movie or what? <laughs> the name of the movie is Chappaquiddick. It stars Ed Helms and there's some other people, but mostly Ed Helms. You come for the laughs, you stay for the, uh, the hijinks in the cars. Ed, great to meet you. A pleasure. Thanks so much. Absolutely.
Oh, this should be a lots, lots of news today. Irv Libby was pardoned. Maybe you know him as Scooter Libby. I, Lewis Libby. No, he's Lewis Libby, and the I stands for Irv. I did an investigation when he was in the news, my God, 13 years ago. But I can report now what I reported then. The I, Lewis Libby, it stands for Irv. He was pardoned. I wonder what state he'll be running for senator in. Trump looking to disinter Spiro Agnew, apparently, such as uh, the president's anti-slime ball initiative. I should have more of a pause between slime and ball. And also the former finance chair of the RNC paid $1.6 million to hush up an affair and a pregnancy and a subsequent abortion with a Playboy Playmate, just like Trump dated a Playboy Playmate. Wow, if Playmate weren't a brand name, I'd feel a little bad using it in the context of both things I just said. Hearing those accounts of women paired off with ruddy-faced married Republican millionaires and billionaires, nothing about that seems particularly playful for the women involved. I mean, having an aging, bloated, plutocrat paw at you, it just lacks a general sense of whimsy and good cheer. And this, of course, reminds us once more of the genius of Hugh Hefner, the icky, desiccated genius. So this guy, he himself, an aging, decrepit plutocrat who pawed at the girls next door, did he have to pay them $1.6 million in hush money? No, he made money off the TV show, The Girls Next Door. What a country for rich men. But that's the news news, and I am here for the Antan Twig of Things, our name for a three-week period, where we check in on comments and questions and suggestions via Twitter. I am at Pescami, P-E-S-C-A-M-I, or the Zucker Book. We're at Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. So I was talking about all the son-in-laws that seem to be caught up in Trump's orbit, the son-in-law of Erdogan and the son-in-law of Trump and the son-in-law of Putin. There are all these mini strong men, strong boys, if you will, and Tanya Ha from Australia, and I know that because she tweeted, hi from Australia, she noted that I left off a famous son-in-law, and that's Iman Agalarov. Now, I only thought of him as the scion of famous Azerbaijani fortune, but of course, for a time, for 12 years, he was also married to the president of Azerbaijan's daughter, so another nefarious Trump-associated son-in-law. We got mail from Patrick O'Neill, at Patty O'Neillio. That day, I was talking about Sister Jean from Loyola of Chicago and how she was a nun and just the word nun and how it doesn't exactly elevate this supposedly exalted position. And he writes, I've been Catholic for nearly four decades, and I never realized that nun descends from words meaning grandma like Nana and Nona. Hey, I learned something too. Thank you, Patrick. On a recent show, we talked about what giraffes sound like, and we played uh, the sound, the actual sound from nature of of a giraffe. Brian Home, what's up, Home, writes in, by now, you may have been carpet bombed by Canadians, yeah, likely, of a certain generation who will inform you of the very long-running Friendly Giant show and the much-beloved Jerome the Giraffe. Now, I want to play you a clip of this show, and uh, I'm not going to tell you who the giraffe is. I'll tell you who the characters are. There's a human guy playing the flute, there's a rooster, and there's a giraffe. Just listen to the dialogue. That was a good oh. barn dance. Boy, that was a good barn Our own barn dance. You know, the wonderful thing about barn dancing is when you get home, what? 
you have no trouble sleeping. Oh, I should think not. You're so exhausted. <laughs> well, think of Rusty playing yeah. playing all those notes. Yeah, that's oh. pretty smart. Chicken wing bones that's, there. That's, that's enough for right. a month of playing. I you think. know, training training is everything. A little more. Um, yeah, the goodbye, the goodbye music. music. Sure, right. here we go. Could you make out who the giraffe was? The rooster was at least putting on a voice. I'm a rooster. I'm I'm at least not a human being. But the giraffe just sounded like a guy, like a guy who wandered into the room. Now, if the Canadians watching at the time were were looking at the screen, they saw this actually purple giraffe uh, mouthing the lines. But did they ever stop to think? He just sounds like a guy. The guy with the flute and the giraffe sound exactly the same, like they could be brothers. My point is, do a voice. It doesn't have to sound like a giraffe. Just doesn't have to sound like a human. Now we get to the Lobstars of the Antan Twig, and the Lobstar Award is for the listener who writes in or emails or somehow improves my life, improves our lives. And I think Adam Kapiniak did this. He gave me a nice tip. It helped me. He reached out to me on Twitter. It was about the Ezra Klein-Sam Harris debate, which was a two-hour-long debate on uh, Ezra and, I guess, Sam's podcast channel. And he wrote, Klein won, whatever that means, and Harris has giant blind spots. I saved you two hours or 24 minutes at quintuple speed. So a couple people had mentioned the Klein-Harris debate, and I started listening after Kipiniak wrote this to me. And I'm 10 minutes in, I'm 20 minutes in, and it is excruciating. The thing starts with an Ezra Klein preamble that he says isn't going to be too long, and it isn't, but it sets the tone about what he was trying to do in the debate. Then Sam Harris comes on, and he gives a preamble that's really long about his motivations for the debate. So the subject of the debate was that Sam Harris interviewed Charles Murray, and uh, writers in Vox took issue with Charles Murray's scholarship, as I think it's proper to take issue with, and uh, Sam Harris sort of lashed out at them because they used a phrase claiming that he didn't know anything about neuroscience. And from there, from what I understand, Sam Harris kind of uh, called Ezra Klein a lot of names and challenged him to a debate, and Ezra said no. It's, it, really, I'm, I'm saving you 20 minutes. It is hell on the listener. Because as I said, Ezra does a preamble. Harris does a preamble. Then every question has a preamble. It's all about, look, I'm not here to impugn your motives, and I totally understand that this is the view that you honestly hold, and I'm not saying, and I don't mean, and I don't want. Do you remember that folk singer, Preamblin' Jack Elliott? The guy who wore the leather vest, and he always played his guitar, and he would intro the song, but it never got to the actual song. This was like Preamblin' Jack Elliott times 20 on quintuple speed. I should have listened to you, Kipiniak. Next, I want to thank and uh, give a runner-up lobster of the Antan Twig to Will Blake, who nominated for me the best performances as Robert McNamara in a movie. He said Alec Baldwin in Path to War, Bruce Greenwood in The Post, Clancy Brown in Chappaquiddick, with an honorable mention of Robert McNamara himself in The Fog of War. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, how are you talking about this on the Antan Twig? When I just... Heard your interview about Chappaquiddick. Well, I tweeted it out, and then Will Blake got back to me. I tweeted out that I was about to speak to Ed Helms. And so this reveals a secret. The interviews that you hear are pre-taped. You know that, but there is the at least the illusion of a contemporaneous conversation. And I bring this up because Paul Vickers wrote in to me and said, Mike, 
In Wednesday's interview with Sloane Crossley, she was recounting her Gossip Girl line, and your response was cut off. Let me play, uh, let me play that part of the interview that Mr. Vickers was referring to. Of which I am still in search of. Of which, that's almost like... Uh, it's so contorty. Yes. And then Paul goes on to say, and then the interview moved on from there. If I may, though, I'd like to play the game of guess what Mike was about to say, or maybe guess what was starting to bubble up from Mike's subconscious but never had the chance to get there, because I think I know exactly what that was like. He thought that I was going to mention the Wings song, Live and Let Die, which has the lyric, in this everlasting world in which we live in. Was I going to say that? Good question. Well, I have something to admit. Not only do we pre-tape interviews, we also edit interviews. So now I will play the actual exchange, the fuller exchange, which was truncated for time to see if Paul Vickers was correct. Of which I am still in search of. Of which, that's almost like... uh, It's so contorty. Yes, yes. And it's not, and it's to sound grammatically correct, it's like you're doing like a triple sow cow to get there. Right. You really just needed to walk. It's a little like <laughs> live and let die in yes. the, of the world in which we live in. In which we live in is the in phrase. Which... In which we live in. You nailed it, Paul Vickers. And that's why normally you'd be the lobstar of the Antan twig, but for this, that was your reward. I give the actual lobstar of the Antan twig to Mark Atron or maybe Markatron. He's at Pleasure Cat. And the occasion was a quote we played from Andrew Cuomo talking about his daughter being a Cyclops, and Markatron came up with this. My daughter is a Cyclops. You will remember that. The green dragon of the old dinosaurs. You will remember that. How could we not give our award, our coveted award, to such artistic achievement? Andrew Cuomo has never sounded more melodic. And you, Markatron or the Lobstar of the Antantwig. And that's it for today's show. Preamblin' Jack Elliott here to talk to you about a guy that you might know. Let me tell you a little bit about, about the gist, and it starts with Pierre Bienname. Now, Pierre Bienname, he was the kind of guy, maybe, maybe you know this kind of guy. He stuck to the highways, but not just the highways. He also visited the byways. And by the way, along one of those byways, that's where he met just senior producer Mary Wilson. Well, Mary, she was a right stubborn old girl she was, and she used to talk to me all surly-like. She'd say, preamblin' Jack, why don't you ever get to the point? And I'd look over yonder, because old Mary, she'd be knee-deep in those, in those briars. And not just the briars, but you're not going to believe this, the brambles. Both the brambles and the briars. She'd be preamblin' in the brambles. And right there would be Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You hear him sometimes at the beginning of the podcasts, asking you to fill out a survey or something. But preamblin' Jack don't like that. No, sir. Preamblin' Jack says, get to the point. I always say that. Because when you're on the highways or the byways, you're caught in the briars or the brambles, not getting to the point, that causes you trials. And not just trials, trials that go with the byways, but also trials that go with tribulations. The gist. Never a trial without a tribulation, never a briar without a bramble. Which is why I, Preamblin' Jack Elliott, I'm going to sing a song. I wrote this in 1967 in the back of a flatbed truck. I was uh, riding down. Well, it might have been a byway at the time. I'm not really sure. They might have reclassified it. What with the the system that the uh, U.S. map makers instituted as dictated by the Department of the Interior. And a one. 
and a two, and an oomperu, deperu, duperu. All right, you ready, boys? Thanks for listening. And... <laughs>